0: Welcome to the Little Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Today, we have the comedian, actor, writer, producer, Roy Wood Jr. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you.
1: And it is an honor and a pleasure, you know, to be a non-rapper and to be invited
0: into this situation. I do appreciate this. Hey, we've had a few non-rappers now. You got to (laughs) cross a certain bar to get to that threshold, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You did cross that bar, though. So thank you for that. Well, I did do a Black Trump rap song in 2016 for The Daily Show. So I think you got to give me that. Okay, I'll give you that. I might post that in the show notes, maybe. Don't give me anything else. Well, I mean, I appreciate you being active during this entire past few months, man. It's been tough on a lot of us, but you've been active from the beginning of COVID. You've been active in the past month or so with the Protests and the uprisings. How have you been doing though? Like, how has it been feeling? Like, how have you been managing everything?
1: I am good in the sense of I'm able to stay busy, which I think a lot of comedians don't have that luxury. So I don't take it for granted. If I be honest, man, a lot of this shit just came up by happenstance. Like, you just get a little bit of a, like, something just nags at you. So when the shutdown first hit, And this is mid-March for me. You know, everybody had a different shutdown date. But in New York City, it was like that first or second week of March, and the comedy club started closing. And there's a club that I love, the DC Improv, and they had put up a goodbye post, and they had let the staff go. And, you know, I really started thinking about how a lot of the club and the club staff, like, you know, this job, there's not a lot of – job security and comedy and even less working in a comedy club. And so I called up the homie, Mike Berbiglia. He called up John Mulaney. And the next thing you know, we're all helping Berbiglia pump up this initiative called tipyourwaitstaff.com. And it was just some GoFundMes for comedy club waitstaff across the country. That, dare I say, felt good. And so then the next thing was, it was a fundraiser to raise money for comedians that are out of work. Laugh-Aid, comedy gives back. There we go. See? Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. It took me a second, but I remembered it. So we started doing that. And then, you know, we started reading books to children and doing e-readings with all of these different children's authors. And then I ended up driving to Birmingham so that my son could be around his grandmother for a little bit, you know, give him some elbow room, some yard, some grass. And then over the next two to three weeks the whole tone of the country changes. There's riots, there's protests first, and then there's riots. And then there was looting. And there was a woman, the first black woman optometrist in the state of Alabama, who's been, she'd been 10 toes down for 40 years in the civil rights district. And her shop got torn up and me and some partners and a lot of other people in the city, like, and that's where I love Birmingham, Motherfuckers just pulled up, bro. We just pulled up to a spot, seven in the morning, donuts and a shovel and some masks and some work gloves and helped get her cleaned up. Did a GoFundMe to make sure Black businesses get back together. Then we started doing stuff with EJI down in Montgomery. And then, you know, Black Lives Matter. We need some paint to paint Black Lives Matter in the street. Fine, here's some money for that. Like, I just think if you're in a position to be a blessing to anyone, be
0: it through your wallet or through your voice, this is the time. Agreed. This is the time to do that. One of the things that you had done early on, I mean, before the protest, Dating back to the beginning of the pandemic, you had written this article in Vulture that was a reality check for stand-ups to be like, hey, like this shit is about to get real. Yeah, The market is going to change a lot. And I think that a lot of those things, you talked about how the economics trickle down from the big comedians then being forced down to smaller venues, and then how the squeeze could also happen for the smaller acts as well. How do you see that impacting like you specifically, like as a comedian kind of going through the next couple of years?
1: I am a comedian and I say this with a sense of self-awareness, which is what I think every comedian should have a sense of physical self-awareness. Do not be naive in where you are because then you can't properly strategize where you're trying to go. You know, I tour on average probably 30 cities a year. We might push it to 40 if it's a year where I'm tuning up an hour special. But on average, I toured 30 cities. And if you're a comedian that's still playing comedy clubs, right, your calendar is essentially split into two quadrants, the cities where you sell well and the cities where you're trying to go repeatedly to build your draw and build your popularity. So... I already knew off the top, okay, if I'm playing 30 cities, there's probably 10 to 12 where I know for sure when I go there, I'm selling every seat. It's going to be a good ass time. I might have to add a show. And then there's markets where I've only gone once, or I'm just now going back for the second time. So you don't even have enough data to know if you're going to be a consistent draw in this region. So let's just take... Kansas City would be a great example for me. Kansas City is not a market that I've gotten to play often due to the way the comedy club infrastructure is set up in that town. So I got to play Kansas City for the first time in a long time in like 2018. And I was supposed to play in 2019. Something happened. So if you're Kansas City, there isn't a fucking chance that you would bring me back in 2020 or 2021 if you don't have to, because you don't know if I'm going to sell. And if you're a comedy club that's been closed for three to four months, you need to bring in only people, only people who you know are going to sell and you're at half capacity because of COVID. So you've got to double your ticket price. And there is a very short list of comedians that people will go see for $50 in a room that normally costs $25. That's just the economics of the business. So if you're smart about it, then you start figuring out now what's the pivot, you know, and figuring out which way it's going to go. I think, you know, for comics that are even further down the totem pole than myself, I think that you have to think about creating independent shows. You have to think about outdoor venues. Maybe, you know, Chappelle is already on that tip. Before Corona, you wouldn't have been able to see Dave Chappelle in a fucking park. <laughs> he ain't doing that. And if he did, it'd be a block party and y'all would be packed in 2000 deep and it would be music in between everything. But this is just such a different time we're in. And God bless Chappelle because it worked. Yeah. What did you think about 846? I thought it was great. I thought, you know, tragedy plus time equals funny. There ain't been enough time. So it wasn't supposed to be funny, funny, not the traditional Chappelle um, thought. And I think that comedians are journalists. Comedy is a form of journalism. And comedians report on our psyche. Comedians report on the human condition. And Chappelle gave us a live report from the field, which is, I think, all it was supposed to be. You know, I think when you start thinking of comedy and some traditional, well, when comics talk about comedy, it's laughs per minute. That's like our RBI points per game, triple-double- Measurement. Right. That's your analytics. Yeah, that's our base analytics. How many laughs per minute was he churning out? It didn't matter. How powerful were the laughs and how powerful were the moments between the laughs? And those are the statistics that you can't, like hustle. You can't measure hustle, you know? So I thought it was good. I thought it was needed. I thought it was a good breath of fresh air. I don't think it does anything ultimately to show comedians what the path is back to live performance because. Unless you're Chappelle, ain't nobody paying $75 to see you outside. And even still, what you going to do in the winter, motherfucker? So, you know, as far as the business of stand up, you know, until there's some cure, people are more calm about COVID. The comics that are living gig to gig, you have to start thinking differently. You have to start thinking differently now. Don't sit under the bed, sucking your thumb, praying that everything is going to work out in a month because it's not. You have to assume that it's not. And this is a pivotal moment creatively for comedians where I think that people are consuming information differently now. You know, people feel different and we're not sure if the country is ready to laugh and all of that. But this is no different than YouTube in 04 or MySpace in
0: 07, 08, I think was the MySpace boom. It's just a different medium that comes through, and then that's where you shift your voice to. A different medium,
1: correct. And I'm not saying that TikTok is going to be that. I don't think it will, not for proper stand-up. It'll be good for snippets, but you know, TikTok is more in that vine land of attention span. Have you got active on there yet? Not yet. My girl keeps telling me. So The Daily Show has a TikTok account. I did some shit for their TikTok that ended up going viral and getting like million views and I was like ah shit I should have had a TikTok I could have I could have captured it. some <laughs> It's on the list man but you know there's only so much time in the day the one thing I have had fun doing during quarantine is really sharpening up video editing photoshop skills and trying to do a little bit I have some ideas and concepts and I'm very much a do-it-yourselfer. It's not that I don't trust people or don't want to hire people. It's just I need to know how to do it, too,
0: so I can know when you're fucking me. Right. You're not necessarily going on tour the same way that you were. Like you said, you roughly had about 30 shows a year. I mean, you'd be on the road, what, every 10 to 12 days at that clip. But yeah, I was averaging two to three weekends a month. And if that's kind of the wave that, if you're not necessarily going on that path anymore, it sounds like, yeah, you're thinking about other projects, but I guess for you, because you already have like deals in place like with Comedy Central and you have other things, there's ways to shift your book of business already. Correct,
1: I'm in a very blessed position to be able to literally look at my calendar and go, well, I don't wanna do that for a while. What's going on over here? I've always wanted to tinker with video editing. Not every comedian has that luxury, but I think I also have an opportunity to provide opportunities to other comics and writers and graphic designers and, you know, anyone else that's feeling the effects, you know, fiscally of what's going on with COVID because the entertainment machine is not going to stop. It will be back. There are way more people have died and way worse disease outbreaks in the history of our species. And entertainment came back every single time, Entertainment came back. Spanish flu, malaria, polio. I don't know the plague. I don't know if they had comedy clubs back then, but the human being has always had the need to escape. You know, so we provide escapism. It's just a matter of whether or not people are ready for it or if they can afford it or if the original constructs that were in place, i.e. comedy clubs and movie theaters and indoor music venues will still be the norm going forward because i think even if there is a cure for COVID and they figure out the vaccine or whatever by the time that vaccine is in place there will be new entertainment habits that would have been developed by performers and consumers then it becomes an issue like right now i tell you something i'm monitoring very closely burt kreischer he's doing drive-ins he's doing stand-up comedy at drive-in movie theaters the Dolphins, their football stadium, they're going to allow fans to drive onto the football field and park and watch a game on the big-ass Jumbotron. Okay, well, could comedy work in that same situation? You know, I don't know. I do think that comedy outdoors is a very different performative skill set. I don't think that every style of comedy works perfectly outside. Have you done much outside, or do you enjoy being outside outside? I am not a fan of it. I've done it, you know. I've done some outside stuff where it's conducive to laughter and it's understood this is a comedy show. And then I've also like been on stage at a music festival during a stage change where they're breaking down guitars and putting up the next band's equipment and I've died a slow death for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, there's music playing from another stage a block over. There's kids in front of you blowing bubbles. You can't do half the material you want to do like Comedy outside is definitely, for sure, it's a nighttime activity. That for sure. But beyond that, I just, It'll be
0: interesting to see where we are down the road. Do you think it's different, though, the clusterfests, which are like, hey, this is purely comedy, as opposed to the music festivals that have a little bit of comedy sprinkled in there?
1: Comedy at any event that is not set for comedy. A comedian that's like on stage and there's something else going on, they treat you like a hair in the food. It's not welcome. They might be able to ignore you, but generally speaking, they want you to get the hell on. And that tends to be how I believe comedy is received at a lot of those events. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to bomb. It's just, you're the Cheddar Bay Biscuits at Red Lobster. At best, you're a Cheddar Bay Biscuit.
0: (laughs) Oh, that was enjoyable, but where's the shrimp? Right. I mean, the biscuits at Red Lobster are good, though. I will say that.
1: Oh, yeah. They're legendary. Pull up there just for the biscuits. You came for something else. And It just so happens that the biscuits were also good. So, you know, I don't know. Like, I have dates on the books right now for August and September. I've just been kind of, like, rolling cancellations the last month. I was supposed to be in Phoenix in June. I was supposed to be in Phoenix and Cincinnati. And I canceled Phoenix, and then three weeks later, Arizona was, like, number one in infections and the rate of hospitalizations or something crazy. It's just... The information is changing so fast, you know, but I missed the stage. You know, I want to get back on stage. I got a lot of shit to get off my chest. Plus, I'm excited to see where these new thoughts take me because all these jokes you wrote, I was talking with some more about this. Pretty much any joke you wrote before Kobe died probably ain't going to work or it needs to be retooled.
0: It was written under a different set of societal norms. I agree with that, and I mean, even from my perspective, I have podcast episodes that I had aired at times, whether it was right before George Floyd or right before other things happening related to COVID, and it's like, no, this has no place. But I'm sure it's not just me. I'm sure there's a lot of, quote unquote, lost archives of content that we may never see that happened in this January to June 2020 time span. Yeah, there's like daily show segments that we shot where we're just like,
1: all right, well, I guess that's never going to air. Because anytime I see groups of people on TV, my mind just immediately goes to wear the mask, wear the mask. Why is no one wearing a mask? Like we went to CPAC to shoot some stuff at that conservative convention in D.C. And I think that was mid-February. That shit ain't going to air. Ain't nobody even talking about CPAC no more. We might be able to steal some B-roll from what we shot over two days in D.C., but there's no reason for that to ever make the air. And even if you did see it, you would just go, wow, that is a lot of people giving each other corona. That's all you would think. That's all I think. When I saw Dio Hughley collapse on stage in Nashville, I was like, oh, nobody's wearing a fucking mask. Like, hey, cancel Phoenix.
0: I just saw you <laughs> collapse. Right. I'm not going. Can I guess this is interesting too for you from a state of perspective cuz yeah, you already had your data that informed you. Yeah, you have your 10 go-to markets then everywhere else fell within that, but then now you got this other data set in terms of how safe is this city? How safe is this state? Are they opening up? What's the politics? Yes, exactly. So
1: I'll give you a perfect example. So I'm scheduled to play. I think it's Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's a theater in New Hampshire that seats 100 people. Small, little, quaint, one little black box theaters. Okay, give me a three-row moat at the front of the venue and then space everybody behind that moat and then put me on stage. But I come on stage straight from... Like, I'm literally thinking my path to the stage. Like, I remember... When I was the opener still in Birmingham, there was a comedian who used to have sex in his limo outside the comedy club until it was time for him to go on stage. So, this is consenting adults. This is nothing sideways. (laughs) Two consenting adults having sex in a limousine. And when it was time for him to go on the stage, as the MC was on stage going, are y'all ready? Show your love. Here he come. Outside in the parking lot. That comic's road manager is knocking on the glass of the limo going, hey, come on stage. And he opens up the door and walks directly backstage onto stage, does his show, leaves the stage right back to the limo. And like that was (laughs) 10, 15 years ago. Like, wow, that's the man. He's having sex and just getting on stage. Now I'm like, maybe I should call that dude and ask him what his system was (laughs) because that might be the new way of walking into a comedy club just on GP. So I'm thinking about all of that. I'm thinking about how serious do people in this city take it? Is there going to be an incident in the lobby if somebody refuses to put a mask on and stuff like that? So I don't want to get caught up in that. But by the same token, though, I would be devastated if they contact traced someone and they caught Corona at my show. Like, what was it, the family in Texas who went to a surprise birthday party and 18 people came home with corona? Right, yeah, that was the one. And if one of them dies, come on, man. Yeah, that would sit heavy, yeah. Yeah. There ain't a joke I'm telling that's worth you coming and maybe dying over. Just stay the fuck home and download whatever podcast I figure out how to put together.
0: (laughs) Just do that. Well, hopefully Portsmouth, New Hampshire, isn't that bad. Uh, You spent much time
1: up there? No, I've been in New Hampshire like twice in my life. The whole Northeast is just weird. Like It took doing stand-up to even realize how diversely different the Northeast is. And this is going to sound ignorant, but you have to remember I'm coming from the perspective of an Alabamian, the same generalizations y'all make about the South, the South makes about the Northeast. And I take that back. It wasn't until maybe college where to me, New York was DC to Boston. Like if I said, somebody's from New York, you was just from I-95, like anywhere in that stretch. And then I got to college and I saw a dude from New York beat up a dude from Washington, DC. And I was like, that's weird. I thought y'all was all from New York. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to college and then you start traveling. You see the world and you go, okay, yeah, even Baltimore people don't mess with DC people. Everybody's got their own little niche and their own little Jersey. People don't like the Bronx and the Bronx doesn't like Brooklyn. And everyone hates Boston as a group. So no, New Hampshire, I've done a couple shows up there. I was up there for the New Hampshire primaries in 2016. And, I think I saw 10 Republicans speak over the course of three days. So we saw a lot of New Hampshire. I don't think we ate at a single chain restaurant in that time. Very homely, very
0: warm up there. Durham's. Yeah, definitely very homely. I had, um, In my last job, I had spent a bunch of time in New Hampshire. And I'm originally from right outside of Hartford, Connecticut. So a lot of that is not too far away. But yeah, I had went to that same area in Concord, because that's where they had all the convention and everything. And I'll never forget this. We had to go to the Capitol building in Concord for a meeting. And they brought us to this gift shop and stuff. And at the gift shop, they have all the posters up from all the past conventions, right? And there's this big cutout of Trump. And the person that is working at the front desk comes to me. She's like, oh, everyone that comes here takes pictures. Do you want me to take a picture of you next to... And then she points to the Trump post up, And I'm like, no, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. And I was like, it was a test. It was 100% a test. I'm very leery of people that are casually
1: friendly about politics. So I did this gig... I don't know. Congressional correspondence dinner. Matter of fact, you can Google it. Watch it on mute because I lost my voice the day before. So my voice is terrible. It's on C-SPAN's YouTube channel. I wore an American flag lapel pin, but I purposefully wore it upside down. And that was just my little small statement about the opinion of the state of America right now. It was just an upside down lapel pin. Never mentioned it. Never drew attention to it. I didn't even do material that was that politically divisive. Like, I'm not Hasan Minaj. Like, I don't have that. I don't have that level. He's got a gear that he goes to where he can just roast politicians to their face. Man, fuck that. I'm not trying to have my chicken poison.
0: He's also not black as well. Yes. So it's a little different.
1: <laughs> so... After the show, somebody from some, I'm with congressman such and such, and that was good stuff. I couldn't help but notice up there, your, your pen was upside down. Do you mind if I fix it for you real quick? <laughs> it's like, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing, motherfucker. you trying to, like it was an accident. right? they tried to
0: catch you. Yeah, I let him fix it, and then he walked off, and I flipped that shit. that's hilarious i do think that a lot of your comedy in this respect has aged pretty well like hearing you say this reminds me of that black patriotism sketch that you had had in your father figure special i mean yeah like we don't have pride for the country in the same way we have pride for like oh this city yeah you could come here but like no that was the joke it's just black people don't write original
1: patriotic songs we don't sing about America. We sing about specific cities where you can have a good time. And then it's just off to the races. It's Will Smith, Miami. It's Welcome to Atlanta, Georgia on my mind. Like, that was a fun joke. Somebody asked Michael Che. You hate that it's still relevant. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's cool that the joke stands up, but you kind of wish the country would have gone past this by now. Like, nah, nah, still here, still kicking. Yeah. No, it's something else. It's fun, though, because when you look at the times we're in now with regards to race, it's going to be interesting. I don't believe that I can do comedy that doesn't touch or at least somehow glance upon the times we're in right now. I don't think I could just do comedy that ignores, you know, the state of affairs, so for me there's a bit of a responsibility to it which is why in an odd way i'm kind of enjoying this time off stage because it's giving me time to absorb and observe and really see what's going on before this in 20 years of comedy i'd never gone more than 12 days without touching a microphone and the only time that i had a gap longer than that was after that c-span gig and i had to take a month off for vocal rest So to go from 12 days off to four coming up on five months,
0: you know, this is different, this is a much different situation. It's been a big change for sure. Shifting gears a little bit, wanna talk a little bit more from a business perspective. And you've worked with Comedy Central for a while now, but last year you had signed a bigger, longer term deal with them, a development deal, first look. And I think a lot has changed for comics as well in the past couple of years or so. What made you decide to get a stronger relationship with Comedy Central? Were there any other partners you would consider at that time? Well, to answer the second question first,
1: there weren't any other partners I was considering at the time because I was still with The Daily Show. And so the saying goes, you dance with the person who asked you on the dance floor. And Comedy Central, well, I should probably more so say neil Brennan and trevor noah reached out at a time when no one else was really fucking with me you know if we go back to 2014 you know in those days i was just coming off of a sitcom on tbs that had gotten canceled and i had a couple partners over at espn that i went to fam you with and they looked out and they put jamel hill up on game so jamel hill and michael smith this is back when they still had his and hers they put me in the mix, which put me with Bomani Jones, which ended up getting me on Sports Nation, which Max Kellerman and Michelle Beadle, and Marcellus Wiley and all that. So ESPN was like the one spot where I was getting to like get some exposure and thriving and, and Conan O'Brien. Like those are the only two people that were consistently showing some level of, you know, give a damn. So for Comedy Central to give me an opportunity, I was like, OK, well, you've let Trevor make a show that's very specific about race and You're showing that you're not afraid to do new ideas. And because I'm already on The Daily Show, we already have a vested interest. So let's see if we can do other things together, because I think that that's going to motivate both of us to grow. And for me, when I look at deals that other Black creatives have in place, there's a very specific synergy. So like if you look at, say, give me Issa Rae and Kenya Barris. Let's start with them. If you look at Issa's deal, and I don't know all of the terms of it, but I know the basics of a talent deal is that you've done one thing so well with this company that they go, we want more ideas from you. Please give us more ideas. Why did Natasha Rothwell, who's been killing shit on Insecure, also sign her talent deal? Okay. And then what did she do? She signed a development and production deal with HBO, the same place that had her on the show that was already banging. So- When you look at Kenya Bears, Blackish did well, and he said, all right, well, then I'm going to go ahead and give y'all Grownish, too. All right, I'm going to go ahead and give y'all Mixedish, too. And it wasn't until Netflix came in and really backed up the Brinks truck that he bounced and took an idea somewhere else. But those first three iterations, it's easier to stay within the family because you're already doing one dope thing together. You have synergy with these people. Let's see what else we could create. And to Comedy Central's credit, you know, I signed the deal and they let me shoot a sitcom pilot about probation officers. And this is two years before this conversation about police reform and propaganda and we need to change the way law enforcement sees on tip. Me and Comedy Central was cooking that shit back in 18. Not only did they do that, dude, we shot the show in Birmingham. They let me take a cable sitcom pilot to a city that traditionally doesn't have like there's some movies and small budget stuff done in Birmingham. I don't want to act like it's a film and television wasteland, but this was a big deal. And then I go, "Hey, um, you might if I have a black woman director and have a bunch of inclusion on set?" And Comedy Central was like, "Yeah, motherfucker, go ahead, do your thing." That's dope. This is two years ago, you know. And granted, there was conversations around inclusion happening at that time, but you know now they like. People are really serious now. They're like, we found a black guy at Starbucks and we hired him. (laughs) We too
0: are inclusive. They just grabbing black people that ain't even qualified to do shit now. Well, on that note, have your inbox and people have been pinging you more for stuff that you weren't getting hit up about a month ago? There's been some inquiries from like random
1: shows to like do stuff, but I can't quite ding it on diversity for diversity's sake. Like this year, I was blessed enough to do Better Call Saul, Space Force, and The Last OG. But all of those offers and conversations came way before this tonal shift that we're experiencing now in Hollywood. So I'm hoping that somebody still likes me for my skills, <laughs> not my skin, which is what minorities, that's what black people going to have to deal with for the next year now. It's nice. like, do they really like me? Or is it just because I'm black, but you
0: can't say no to the opportunity. So you got to gobble it up regardless. Right. We're getting to the tail end. Um, Few quick questions for you. I know that Alabama is important for you. And you already said that you've been going back there and you wanted to bring your son there and you've done a lot of work to help build it up. I'm back
1: now. I drove back to New York. Them niggas ain't wearing masks down there. They ain't acting right. <laughs> told my girl, I was like, yo, we got to back up the car. <laughs> get,
0: get back to New York where the outbreak is safe. Has any of this like sparked an idea that they go, okay, like, no, we can help build up this ecosystem here. Like I can use my talents. I can use my platform and help create and give back here, especially like from like a small business and small community perspective.
1: Yeah. I mean, everything that I do is to bring something beneficial back to the young people in Alabama. I've tried to figure out a million different ways to not give a damn about the crib, but like even just something as simple as shooting a television show. And that's why I'm so anxious when we get to do the rewrite and reshoot, you know, some of the pilot or whatever, is that, you know, we shot that show in the civil rights district and, you know, you got young black people on set seeing something happening. And if you see it, then it feels more attainable. And so that's all I'm trying to do is you use the leverage that you have nationally to make things better locally. Because I know deep down at the core, nobody gives a shit about Alabama other than people from Alabama. Alabama is the last on anybody's list of priorities, of fixing, and we've well earned the reputation of racism and football and like all that, I get it. But there's also a lot of good people doing a lot of dope stuff. And you start talking about all this Confederate monument stuff that's been happening ever since George Floyd, The first one that was pulled down was in Birmingham, Alabama, by a mayor who defied state law and got fined $25,000 for it. So there are people there that are well on the right side of doing things. And I just think there has to be more time and opportunity and revenue and people who care enough to fight to bring stuff back. But then what you also need, what I need, is to be with a partner that understands what the long game is. The long game is not to make a television show. The long game is to use the television show as a catalyst to make people's lives better and to bring industry to a place that desperately needs it. And so when you start talking about who to sit down and make ideas with, it's not enough to just say, oh, this network or this streamer is going to pay me this much money. What are they really going to let me do towards my greater goals? And when I told Comedy Central what my long game was, them motherfuckers didn't flinch so ain't nothing to be said after that hey i want to do an animated show about a single black father didn't flinch those are the things that i take into account when you're talking about who to actually get in bed with and i think that's where a lot of black creatives need to look at
0: yeah because we're in this position where you have the power at least to some extent where they're coming to you now. And now it's all about how can we hold these organizations accountable? And I think the accountability comes from looking at, okay, who's been doing this work before this past month came through and everyone realized that it needed to be a priority. Who was doing it before the social pressure came through?
1: But what I don't want to happen is like, we scream for change as a race and then motherfuckers start trying to change up. And then the first thing you go, well, the only reason you doing it is Yeah, maybe. Maybe that might be the only reason they're doing it, but they're doing it. So snatch that bacon and do something with it and grow it. You know, worry about the why later. Like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I ain't with that, man.
0: No, that's real. Last question for you before we let you go. I think I told you this earlier, but had seen you when you came through to San Francisco. I believe this was the end of 2018. Yeah. And you were at Cobb's Comedy Club. Oh, Cobb's. And that's a market where I do well. Okay, because I was just going to ask you, was that one of those top 10 markets for you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So San
1: Francisco, I used to do the Punchline, which was the smaller venue, which seats like 200. And I think Cobb seats like 350 or 400. And so when I got the call from the booker, that 2018, you're like, yeah, we think we're going to move you over to the bigger, to the big. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's one of the spots I'm trying to decide because I still have another hour special that I want to do. Like San Francisco, I do so well that it's one of the cities on the board for the place to shoot my next hour special. It's between San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Those are the three cities where I really... They love me in Chattanooga, Tennessee as well.
0: I don't know what that's about. That one doesn't quite line up with those first three.
1: I mean, I played there regularly the front half when I was still a Southern comic, but yeah, Chattanooga loves me.
0: (laughs) Shoot it down Brainerd Road. I don't know. We'll see. No, that's dope. And I'll definitely look out for that. That would be good to see. And who knows? San Francisco could be one of those markets you could double the price to. People do make money out here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's not get arrogant yet. Let's get him in for 25 before we double up to 50. Then I take him outside in the park for 75. Chappelle style.
0: (laughs) Good call. Good call. Well, Roy, this has been a pleasure. Appreciate you coming through. Is there anything else that you want to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? No, man. No.
1: Just find a group. That supports what you believe in and send them money. I am not here to rattle off the names of charities, but you can find them and find one that means something to you. And it doesn't even have to be a group that is speaking to the times we're in now, it could be something that benefits the homeless, it could be something that benefits you know, battered women and shelters, you know, there's a million different places that are in need. And actually those nonprofits actually suffer more during these times because all of the charity goes another way. Sizable charity donations have a tendency to follow the zeitgeist rather than the actual needs in the community. So, you know, just do your homework, ask a black person. Yeah. Matter of fact, do that. When you see a black person, well, you know what, if you white, don't ask a black person. Shout at the black person from across the street. Mm, you know what? Don't shout at a black person from across the street. Just go to go to Trapital. Go to trapital.com and
0: uh <laughs> find, find you some links. I'll post some links in the show notes. Roy Wood Jr.'s recommended resources, Capital.com. Above all, I ride for the EJI
1: in Montgomery, Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative, who makes sure that people who can't afford a good lawyer get a good lawyer and get the hell out of these bullshit sentences they were given in a racist court system.
0: So just go there. Start with the EJI. And for those listening, if you haven't been to Montgomery, you get a chance to go to that National Memorial for Peace and Justice. I think every person in this country should go check that out.
1: Yeah, go check it out, but also schedule a Pixar movie after you go, because that that thing is deep and emotional, and you're going to need something to get you out of that rut. Agreed. Whew, that thing is like going to the African-American Smithsonian. You need a timeout in the middle of
0: that. At least the Smithsonian exhibit had some, like, highlights towards the end of it, right? It was like, oh, we did it. Like, we got all these celebrities making it right at the top floor. But, like, <laughs> in Montgomery, that thing is just like, yeah, you need a Pixar movie after.
1: Yo, that museum in Montgomery is so serious. It should just be white people giving foot rubs at the exit. Like, <laughs> on the way out, it should just be a white person going, sorry about that. You want to take your
0: shoes off? All right, let me cut this off before one of us says something that we regret. All right, thanks, Roy.
1: All right, man. Thank you, brother.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcast, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter, get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcy at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.